Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. This is Dave, and I want to welcome you to today's Am I Called podcast. Last January, Jared Wilson um, joined us in Tallahassee for our annual OFI. That stands for Of First Important Pastors Conference, and that's really where Jared and I met. Now, in, in preparation for today's interview, because Jared's joining us today, I went to Jared's site and pulled down his biography and discovered what I thought was one of the most unusual bios that I think I've ever read. Let, let me read it to you. It says, Jared Wilson is the Director of Content Strategy for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Managing Editor, editor of the For the Church, which is Midwestern site for gospel-centered resources. Okay, so far so good. And then it goes on to say, Jared is not a catalytic agent of change or a visionary anything. He is a failed church planter and once made a mess of his marriage. He likes food too much and worries way too much about what people think. And he's definitely not all that he's cracked up to be. After 20 years of ministry, he's mainly learned that he's kind of a nincompoop, but he knows Jesus loves him. So in this interview, I want to talk a little bit more about that, uh, about some of the ideas behind that bio. But first, Jared, I just want to say thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to talk to you again. Okay, so this this bio seems like a kind of application of of Second Corinthians, Jerry. You know, Paul's boasting in his weaknesses rather than his strengths. I guess the question I want to ask you is how how did you come to a place where you decided that when you went to portray yourself publicly, you wanted to portray yourself this way? Well, I I mean, I have to admit that that first line, that sort of catalytic agent of change. Or, or visionary was sort of the impetus because I just got tired of seeing in so many speaker and author bios this sort of like you know demigod kind of kind of yeah, status yeah. and it's so so off-putting just as a consumer you know as someone who reads as someone who you know who listens you know you know guys and um, even you know folks that I look up to and that sort of thing. Um, so I just have this aversion to that sort of thing, and a lot of it has to do with the sort of um, church methodology and, and, and movement that I was trained for ministry in and came out of. So it's somewhat reactionary. Um, but it is also, you know, motivated by a desire to, to make sure that, that what's known about me is the gospel. Um, but it's somewhat, in a way it's kind of backfired because people always note this biography <laughs> on the website. It gets, uh, mentioned and, and, and read when I go speak and, and that sort of thing. And, People always, you know, talk about how humble I am because of this thing. And you can only hear you're humble so many times before it actually yeah. works the opposite, you know, direction. Well, one of the benefits I would think is that it lowers the expectations of you as well, and <laughs> that way, if you do well, everybody's surprised. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I I think that if someone were to ask me um, about the biggest surprise that I've had in leadership since I've started ministry, some. 28, 29 years ago, I, I think it would be that I, I, I never thought that my, my strengths could be so dangerous and, mm -hmm. uh, and my weaknesses so glorious. And, and so, you know, part of what I love about 
this is that uh, you're just you're kind of uh, doing what Paul does in Second Corinthians, boasting in your weaknesses and not assuming that um, what you want to be known by are the are the books that you've published or the accolades or achievements that you've you've made. Yeah, you know, I, I was just speaking to a friend yesterday um, who's who's trying to get started getting published. I, I'm helping him put together a book proposal, and you know, there's always this sort of tension or or temptation, I guess, to to stretch the truth a little bit. And I was sharing with him that you know, it was it was on this website actually originally. So when I was first starting out, um, before my first book came out. I had in my bio the phrase uh, "award-winning writer," <laughs> and and uh, you know I was telling them that you know it was technically true. I had you know won this award of merit from the Journal of Christianity and Literature for uh, an essay I wrote on John Milton, but you know it's like you know, it's like an honorable mention thing, you know. And if I had actually said what it was, it would it would not be the least bit impressive to anyone that I was trying to actually impress. Um, but I, I felt convicted about that. I had this, uh, uh, you know, award-winning writer on there, and it kind of stuck around. It kind of followed me around, um, you know, this this bio, and it was really a conscience issue for me. And so I was trying to encourage him. Uh, you know, obviously, you you have to talk yourself up to some extent, you know, on these things because publishers want to, you know, see w- what you bring to the table platform-wise. Um, but you know, not to do anything that would sort of compromise, uh, you know, your conscience and. And so, what I have on there now is sort of my swinging the pendulum to the you know to the other direction, I guess. Yeah, I think we're all wired to want to portray ourselves in the best light, portray ourselves through our strengths. And uh, you know, one of the things that you say in in this bio is that you were a you were a failed church planter. Yeah. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that story and you know some of the things that you learned from it. Sure. Well, I mean, it began, I was um, leading the young adult ministry uh, of a pretty large church in Tennessee and, um, you know, had, you know, this group of people, um, you know, who essentially were my flock. I mean, I felt loyal to them. Um, We were all enjoying the gospel together. Uh, But it became very clear over time that what we were doing uh, in the young adult ministry was very different from sort of the paradigm for teaching, for ministry of the mother church of the big church and it was in you know, somewhat in transition itself because the church had had recently fired their pastor and uh, had recently acquired a new pastor um, and he was doing a you know a, a lot of things in that transition um, I mean, the church had kind of you know gone through a messy period uh, so he had a lot a lot bigger fish to fry um, great guy uh, but it became clear that we really had different philosophies of ministry different visions for um, what the young adult ministry should do or could be, and we ended up essentially with a church within a church, which was not what either of us wanted. It, it wasn't, you know, by design, but that's essentially what happened. So, you know, it became, um, you know, evident to all of us, um, you know, that the church wasn't the great uh, or the best place uh, for me for my family. Um, but I had these people. And, and I felt loyal to them. And with the church's blessing, I went and met with the elders. They were, you know, they didn't send us at, as a church plant, uh, but they didn't look at it as a split in any way. They were glad for us, um, you know, to continue doing our thing independently. And so they just sort of released us, I guess. Yeah, and what year was this? Uh, this was, I think, 2006, 2007, something like that. 
Uh, so you're starting the church with primarily young yes. people, single people? Yes, which is not a, a great way to plan a church <laughs> to, to begin with. So I had a lot of, uh, I mean, it was almost exclusively, apart from one other family, aside from my own, um, young singles, college students, young professionals, uh, which in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, you know, they tend to be a pretty transient um, group. They're there for school or they're there trying to get into the music business or what have you. Um, so not the most, you know, stable um, core. But really the burden of, uh, you know, the problem was on myself as a, as a church planner. I should not have been a church planner and I'm, I'm not wired for that. I don't have the entrepreneurial um, leadership you know, the kind of kingly, uh, you know, traits that a church planter ought to have. Did you have, go through um, any kind of evaluation or assessment before you did that? No, sir. No, sir. It was a completely independent thing. We we sought out mentors, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pretty early on, and, and I had a pastoral mentor in, in Ray Ortland, um, but they were not a, you know, a sponsoring church. I didn't have any kind of, uh, you know, board or, or evaluating you know, committee or anything like that. So how far into it were you before you began to realize, you know, I, I don't think this thing is going anywhere? <laughs> well, I mean, we were sort of spinning our wheels. We we had plateaued. We were not growing. Um, and we were about a year in. And I'm, you know, I'm working for free. Uh, my wife is working full time. And, you know, we realized we were really upside down, um, you know, as a family. Um that you know the church was um you know was a enjoyable community be, to be a part of um there are people who were a part of that church plant who um you know look back and see it as a very for you know, said them it wasn't a failure you know i've sort of you know shared some regrets with some of them about um you know the failure of of the organization of of the body you know to no longer exist and most of them respond to say they didn't see it as a failure at all, that they learned a lot about the gospel and a lot about being on mission in their community. And um, so, you know, it was successful on a lot of levels, except institutionally, organizationally. Mm-hmm. Um, Did yeah. you experience some kind of, uh, I, mean, I mean, one of the things that's common among church planters when the church does not go well or the church ends up shutting down is there's, an attack on the level of identity. Uh, did you experience anything like that? Do you mean identity? You mean personally? Yeah, or, personally. Um, you know, certainly, my identity as as a church planter, um, but not as a pastor. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I felt um, you know that my strengths were sort of confirmed and and affirmed through that experience. Um, and my weaknesses, of of course, you know, you know, confirmed as well. Um, and and more exposed. I've got a buddy who uh, who was a church planter, and uh, you know, uh, when I was doing some of my seminary work, I decided to dedicate uh, a, the project that I was doing for uh, for the doctoral stuff that I was doing because it was on church planting. And this this buddy uh, had gone out and planted a church in an impoverished area. It was an urban area, very difficult, and it had gone on for a few years and ultimately it it didn't uh it didn't take off mm. and didn't have life and vitality and and uh wasn't self-sustaining and and so um you know but one of the things that that i wanted to communicate to him 
was through a quote that I saw, and I don't even remember the first time I saw it or where it was, but it, the quote was that some goals are, are so noble that it's glorious to even make the attempt. Mm. And wh- that's how I think about church planting. That's how I think about gospel work. You know, it's just yeah. that there are some things that are just so glorious. They're so, they're so noble that it, uh, it's, it's worth it to just make the effort, to just give it a try, just to show up and preach that's the right. gospel. Yeah, well, you know, and I, and I do believe, and I believed then, but, you know, I believe it more so now. I've seen it confirmed, I, I think. You know, the Lord really hasn't called us to success. He's He's called us to faithfulness. And so, you know, I was doing what I, uh, w- what I knew to do. Um, you know, I was put in that position essentially as a pastor, which I certainly feel that I'm gifted for and called to do. And so it was sort of driven out of a sense of loyalty. Now, you know, certainly if I had you know, could kind of go back and deconstruct, uh, you know, the way that I did it and the way that we carried it out, I would have, you know, done a, a thousand things differently um, in order to make the the church plan itself more viable or or found another alternative, you know, to pastor those people, um, you know, all go on, you know, gone to a particular community together or, or joined with another, you know, church planter or something like that. Um, but, you know, I do believe that I was doing what the Lord had called me to do in in that moment. And then you went on to pastor up in up in New England, and I'm sure that influenced how you pastored and how you cared for people and empathized with them and and sympathized with them. It did, and and even from you know the sort of success failure vantage point, um, you know, I I believe that I had had a really profound experience and sort of seeing this thing that that my family and and the team that we had planned with had kind of put our heart and souls into you know saw it have to die when i left and so when i when i go to vermont where there's a lot of churches dying and ours began to grow and people were really enjoying it i had a you know sort of the opposite experience in the, in the sense that we couldn't keep people away from our church in vermont which is a a rare thing there but i was able to sort of walk into that cautiously and and not enjoy that uh, in the wrong way, because I knew what it was like to be on the other side, and and had I think been one to, um, you know how delicious grace is and how how satisfying Jesus is that I didn't want to enjoy the growth too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no. So um, somewhere in that timeline, according to your bio, you, you indicate that you, you know, you made a mess of your marriage. So what? You know, what was the story behind that? Yeah, that was um, probably about 13, 12, 13 years ago. Um, that was before uh, the ministry in Nashville. And in fact, uh, we believe, Becky and I both believe that, um, you know, the sort of unleashing into that particular ministry, the, the young adult ministry and the church plant, the, you know, the fact that um, we were sort of pioneering uh, in, in that area, um, sort of a gospel-centered ministry it was a new thing to us. Um, was birthed from this experience, a sort of train wreck in 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 our marriage, which was um, brought about by you know decisions that I was making, the person I had become, um, you know choices that I had made, um, you know growing from what for a long time was a secret sin, private sin, um, largely pornography use, uh, but that became more uh, you know exposed my marriage. Um, I just w- was crushing Becky's heart. Um, I tell the you know the full story and uh, with a lot of details in in the last chapter of of my recent book, The Prodigal Church. Um, but really, what it amounted to was 
um, callousing my wife and, and turning her, her heart against me to the point where she didn't want to be married to me anymore. And it, and it took that sort of that bottom dropping out for me to finally kind of get it. And I went through a period of depression, um, after that, um, you know, battling suicidal thoughts and, and everything. And it was out of that experience, uh, one night face down in our guest bedroom where I was, you know, sleeping at the time, <coughs> the, the Lord really grabbed a hold of me and, and, and spoke the words of, of truth to me. And that was my experience. I, I call it gospel wakefulness. There was sort of this personal revival that, that happened for me. And it didn't change the circumstances. It didn't magically make my wife in love with me or anything like that. Uh, but it gave me suddenly a joy and, and a power uh, to walk in repentance, uh, which eventually led to our, our marriage being restored. My wife, um, you know, seeing that I had changed, you know, trusting that I had changed and, uh, and us being reconciled. And it was out of that that then God began to open up some doors uh, for ministry. Jared, I want to ask you to, to speak to two different listeners that might be, might be tuned in right now. One might be the, the person, the man who is struggling with pornography. Um, just real quick, you know, he, he's out there, he's listening, and he's in bondage. And so what steps could he take to experience the same kind of freedom that you now live in? Well, you know, I think... Um, there's really two or three things that are that are essential. Um, the first, of course, is a kind of accountability um, that has actual responsibility or the potential for discipline um, in it. Um, you know, accountability and confession, because when you bring this stuff into the light, um, it, it loses some of its power and it loses some of its luster. Um, but you, the kind of accountability that you know you need to have, kind of the kind of honesty that you need to have has to be with someone where there's uh, a little skin in the game for you. I, I think we can all think of examples of, you know, accountability partnerships or relationships where people just are sort of mutually trading their sin and it's this sort of cathartic thing. And, and, um, it, I heard Doug, it, Doug Wilson calling it the swimmers drowning together club. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> where it doesn't really, uh, you know, engage on, on the battle level. And so for me, what that meant was, um, you know, doing what a lot of guys do, which is to have, you know, the, uh, accountability software uh, on my devices. Um, but my reports go to my wife. And so it has this sort of dual role in the sense that if I, you know, wander outside of the bounds electronically, um, you know, uh, she's going to know about it. You know, the one person that I wouldn't want to know about it is going to know. But it also, for her then, as she gets these reports week after week, month after month, year after year, it begins to build confidence for her, um, you know, to see, uh, you know, it builds trust when she sees a clean report, you know, over time. Um, so do that's you, key. Do you also have, have a, a, do you also have a, a friend or a mentor or anybody that receives a report or is it just your wife? It's just my wife, yeah. Now, now when, when we had the church plant, I had the other guys on the leadership team mm -hmm. uh, were receiving it. Um, but at this time, it's just my wife, yeah. Any other uh, thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, I would say what you are looking at is is what, you know, directs your vision and shapes your heart, whatever we're consuming. And so it, it's not enough to simply, you know, have this sort of... Um, uh, you know, practical, you know, prohibition, whether you have, 
uh, a report software or a filter or whatever it is, that's good. Um, but you know, pornography is a worship problem. There's you know, something underneath the sort of uh, you know behavior of lust or, or or behavior of engaging in pornography um, that it is it is a, an attempt to satisfy something in our heart, um, as all sin is, and so that can only be replaced and satisfied by Christ. We're looking for something of God and and all of these things that are sins. And so to look at the gospel, to be, you know, consuming the gospel um, as often and as much as possible is really, really the only way to kind of displace that perverted affection um, in, in a way that's lasting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. And uh, so, so let me transition then to the second group. And that would be maybe a, a, a group of guys listening that that read your bio, hear your thoughts, and they, they realize, yeah, now here's a guy who, who basically has decided to lead through his weakness and to kind of put that out in front of him. In fact, in your bio, you call yourself 20 years of nincompoop. Um, <laughs> so counsel, counsel these guys that may not be in ministry or are brand new in ministry on why they too should 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 be up and out front with who they are their wink their weaknesses and uh and and should choose to lead that way rather than portraying themselves in their strengths well i think essentially because it's honest um and it also i think glorifies god more um you know you're highlighting where the power for your ministry and your message comes from, which is the gospel. It's the only thing, uh, you know, this good news is the only thing the New Testament says that we have that is power, the Holy Spirit working through the message of the finished work of Christ. And so the more that we're able to, you know, boast of our weaknesses and boast in our weaknesses, um, the more we're sort of, um, you know, acknowledging that, uh, you know, neither he knew, you know, who plants nor he who waters is anything. Uh, but God who gives the growth. And so it's 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 a great way, I think, if it's honest and 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 not a sort of false modesty, um, you know, self-deprecation can sometimes be uh, a way of fishing for comments, um, you know, you know, fishing for you know someone to build you up <laughs> in a prideful way. Um, but it's a great way to acknowledge where you know the actual power for ministry comes from. Yeah, in one way or another, um... You know, it's it's like weaknesses is so important to God that He's going to deliver us there, yeah. um, one way or another. It's 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 good to acknowledge that from the outset and and begin begin moving toward that in ministry from the very beginning. Yeah, and they're going to find out anyway. Your people are going to know over time what your weaknesses are. Yeah, they know you're a sinner. You might as well <laughs> tell them how you sin. You know, right? Um, Jared, so recently you. You left that ministry in, in New England, up in Vermont, where you were a pastor, and you became the director of content strategy for Midwestern Baptist. And so, you know, that's a lot more than just a, you know, a, a job change or a, I mean, that's really a, a, a change in, in calling in some ways. You went from pastoral ministry to the ministry of communications. What, talk a little bit about the decision to leave pastoral ministry. Yeah, well, it was probably one of the hardest things, uh, you know, that I've ever done, and it was very confusing um, for me when we went to Vermont. Um, both my wife and I both, uh, we felt like 
this is where we're going to be. I mean, I, you know, I went there to die, essentially. I wanted to, to be there through seasons of ministry. I, I was committed to being their pastor. I wanted to be buried across the street, you know. Um, and so, you know, six years in to have sort of independent of each other, I, I was already, um, you know, struggling with feelings of, um, well, trying to distinguish, am I just tired? Because our church had gone through a lot of suffering um, in the short time that we were there, um, just death after death after death uh, of, you know, young people, people that we were friends with, I mean, people who, did, you know, we did ministry with. And, and so I was just really, you know, burnt out anyway. Um, but also, as the church was growing and the vision was expanding for, uh, for mission and ministry there in the area, I was having to tap into um, leadership capacities that I'm very shallow in. And, and that was beginning to take a toll as well. And so I just started to have this kind of discontent. And this gnawing sense of maybe I'm just here to plant, or I'm just here, you know, uh, I'm here for a season, I, and and someone else really needs to take this church to the next level. Well, I was just sort of sitting on that, and I had talked to the elders a little bit about, you know, the the, the weariness and that sort of thing, and um, they had very helpfully, uh, you know, responded well and 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 tried to put up some guardrails for me ministry wise, kind of protect some of my time in some areas. Um, you know, I was the only staff person at the church, didn't even have an assistant. Um, you know, so there were a lot of things that just were were taxing my energy, and 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 so they, you know, kind of put some guardrails in place. But it was Becky, I think, who, um, when she began to express feeling disconnected and and in a sense feeling called, you know, she, she felt she was being called away, that that kind of uh, emboldened me and and gave me the courage to kind of face up. You know, to what I was dealing with as well. If she was loving it, you know, honestly, um, it, you know, if Becky was just loving life there and was having a great time. I probably would have just put my head down and and barreled forward and and just kept going out of out of stubbornness. But she kind of gave me the courage to say, you know what, I'm actually feeling this too. And we didn't know what to do with that. I certainly never aspired to work at a seminary. I, I'm not a seminary grad myself, so you know, even if I had thought. To work at a seminary, I wouldn't have thought that I could. And um, the, this phone call, I, I spoke at Midwestern Conference last year uh, in the summer, and um, they called about a couple weeks later. I, I thought I was just speaking at a conference. Um, but the, the phone call came at the right time where Becky and I were both sort of you know praying and, and sorting through what a next step should be. And um, it, it, it turned out the more that we engaged with the seminary, that this was the right move for us. Um, and I've come into this, you know, thinking perhaps, you know, this is a season as well. But I've learned, if I've learned anything, it's, it, it's not to, uh, to make assumptions about those things. So describe more specifically what you do at Midwestern. I mean, what is a director of content strategy? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my main role is serving as the managing editor for, for the church. Uh, ftc.co, um, which is a gospel-centered resource site that's sponsored by the seminary. Um, we have articles, videos, you know, blog posts um, on all different sorts of things, mainly aimed at ministry leaders and pastors. Um, but there's a pretty wide variety for the evangelical Christian um, gospel-centered resources. And that's probably 70, 80 uh, percent of my role is that. And then the other is I do social media. Uh, for the seminary and for for the church, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
And then I, um, we have a director of communications. We have a, you know, obviously a whole communications department uh, where they are doing promotions, ads, view books, you know, working with admissions and, and recruiting and events and all that sort of thing. And I sort of have um, an editorial eye on a lot of that stuff that goes out, just making sure content-wise um, that things sound, you know, sound good, that the commas are in the right place and all that sort of thing. Well, we're grateful to know that you're in a position of influence there, Jared, and that you're helping to shape the message that goes out. And just really grateful that you are took the time to be with us today. And 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 in particular, just opening your story a bit and your and your heart to our listeners. So thank you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Dave. Folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there's plenty of other others with guys, other podcasts with guys like Sam Storms and Paul Tripp and Scotty Smith, just church planters and artists or writers or thinkers. And it's all at amicall.com. And there's also some free resources there. And there's a leadership assessment test to help guide men who might feel called to ministry. So, so check it out if you have a chance. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us.